All right, if you got your Bible with you, turn to the book of Zechariah, which is the second book from the end of the Old Testament. We're going to be continuing our study of the people who were coming out of exile, uh, coming back to Jerusalem after it had been destroyed. Jealousy is what we're going to be talking about today. At least that's a, a main theme in today's passage. And that's something that we normally wouldn't consider to be a very good thing. There are countless murders every year that ultimately can be traced back to jealousy, jealous lovers, people acting out in jealous rage. In an article from the LA Times in 2007, University of Texas psychology professor, uh, Dr. David Buss wrote this. He said, quote, jealousy is possibly the most destructive emotion housed in the human brain. It's the leading cause of spousal murder worldwide, according to analyses I did of data over the last century. He goes on to say, jealousy causes much suffering. Those whose partners are jealous endure behavior that ranges from vigilance to violence. Their mail is torn open, their computers hacked, their activities monitored, their motives interrogated, their integrity impugned, their worth denigrated, their friends banished. Those who experience jealousy suffer too. They feel anxious, depressed, angry, humiliated, out of control, sometimes suicidal. End quote. And you read something like that, and it's like, wow, yeah, jealousy can be a a really, really bad thing. And as frightening as it may be, the truth is that every single one of us is capable of feeling jealousy. And yet few, if any, would try to present the case that jealousy is a virtuous quality, a quality that we should aspire toward. And maybe that's why some people are so put off by the idea of God being jealous. A few years back, Oprah Winfrey was talking about how revolting the idea of God being jealous was to her. She said this, she said, quote, this great minister was preaching on how great God was and how omniscient and omnipresent and God is everything. And then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous, and something struck me. I was like 27 or 28, and I'm thinking, God is all. God is omnipresent, and God is also jealous? God is jealous of me? And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. And she goes on to say, and that is where the search for something more than doctrine started to stir within me. End quote. That search has led her far, far away from God, if you look at the things that she says and believes. She's a smart woman, Oprah Winfrey is, but she missed the mark here completely. God is jealous. God is indeed jealous, but it's not a jealousy that's like our jealousy. When we become jealous, it means somebody else has something, or we suspect that somebody else has something that we don't, something else that we feel entitled to, something else that we want. But just as we saw last week that God's anger is not like our anger, so too we have to understand that his jealousy isn't like our jealousy. Our jealousy is uh, grounded, it's rooted in things like covetousness, fear, maybe low self-esteem, 
uh, paranoia, things like that. It leads us to feel bitterness. It leads us to feel resentful. It leads us to feel uh, animosity toward people. And these emotions, I think we can all agree, these types of emotions are all completely inconsistent with Christ-likeness, inconsistent with godliness. Bitterness, resentment, and animosity don't fit in with godliness, which is why it's mentioned, which is why jealousy is mentioned as a work of the flesh that's contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. James says it's demonic. He says jealousy is demonic. He goes so far as to say, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That's from James chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And so given all of this, it might be surprising to learn that God is jealous God is jealous. It might seem inconsistent with the nature of a loving God. After all, God is love. And yet what we read in Scripture in verses like Exodus 34.14 tells us that God is jealous. He says in Exodus 34.14, You shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. We read in 1 Kings chapter 14, Verse 22, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. So here's what we find. If we're to do a a word study in Scripture and find out what's related to God's jealousy, what drives or motivates God's jealousy, we find that he expresses his jealousy in response to the sin and the unfaithfulness of his people. That is to say that God's jealousy flows from his incredible love that he has for his people when they wander astray. And so you might wonder, okay, so how does God's jealousy fit in with him being a holy, just, and righteous God? And why is it okay for God to be jealous but not for us? And those are good questions. The answer starts with understanding that you and I don't own anything. We ultimately don't own anything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's all his. You and I don't own anything. It's all God's. So when we want something that we don't have or that we feel entitled to, jealousy is sinful because ultimately it's an expression of discontentedness and distrust toward God. But for God, here's your definition of of God's jealousy. For God, jealousy is a reflection of his love and his unyielding commitment to that which is rightfully his, which includes the worship and adoration of his people. I'll say it again. Jealousy is a reflection of his love and his unyielding commitment to that which is rightfully his which includes the worship and adoration of his people. Now, as we continue in our study of the book of Zechariah today, we're going to look at the first two of eight prophetic visions that were given to Zechariah, which will reveal his jealousy, which will reveal the deep love that he has for his people and the jealous commitment he has for their hearts. So having instructed in the first six verses of the book, 
in having instructed the remnant to repent and to turn their hearts back to God while they were in the middle of rebuilding the temple, we continue in verse 7. Verses 7 and 8, we read this. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Uh, son of Ido, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. So this vision comes about three to, to three and a half months after what we read in the first six verses of this chapter which was in the eighth month. Now we're in the 11th month, which means if we take this book and Haggai together, uh, it means that this was about two months after Haggai's final words from the Lord. And so what we need to understand here, first of all, is that this was not a dream. This was not something that he, that he dreamed up that, that you know, came from himself. This was a vision. He was awake. He was conscious And he sees what he sees, not because he's sleeping and and imagining things, but because the word of the Lord came to him to show him this. We need to understand that the language that we're about to encounter, by the way, is all very symbolic. And so in uh, in a way, it's a little bit mysterious. Uh, It might make it seem a little bit mysterious, but that's mostly because we live in a completely different culture than the one that this was written to. In ancient culture, I think it's pretty safe to say that they would have understood all the symbolism here. For example, they would have understood that you know, each color and, and each object is a symbolic representation with, with some objective meaning behind it. So here we see that there was a man riding a red horse and a man standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. Because the myrtle was a small shrub shrug that commonly grew in Israel. It came to commonly symbolize the remnant of Israel. I like that, you know, the, the people of God aren't likened to, uh, to, to great uh, cedars. You know, there were some huge cedars there. They're not uh, likened to, to oak trees. They're not symbolized by oak trees. Well, they were symbolized by a shrub that rarely grew to more than eight feet tall. But it was an evergreen shrub. And here in the Pacific Northwest, we know what that means. It means uh, that in season and out of season, it stays green. It stays alive. So it symbolizes, it represents the stability of the remnant in the Lord, both in season and out of season. Further, just as a side note, kind of an interesting side note, myrtle trees are known for producing a really nice fragrant aroma when its petals uh, of its flowers are crushed which maybe symbolizes the grace of Israel when she was afflicted. And so the man in this vision, he's riding a red horse. That's symbolic as well. Because red is the color of blood, red often symbolizes things like war or vengeance in Scripture. And behind this man on the red horse were horses. It doesn't say how many. Maybe there was... Maybe there were two behind him. Maybe there was a whole army of horses behind him. We don't know how many. But these other horses were of two other colors. White, which you might guess represented peace, uh, and sorrel, 
Anybody know what color sorrel is? Is that in your crayon box? Scholars don't have any kind of consensus on this, by the way. They're not even sure what sorrel is. But the indication seems to be that it's maybe spotted or it's just kind of a a mix of colors. And because we're not sure exactly what sorrel even is, it's tough to figure out exactly what it means. But the, the most common suggestion seems to be that it's maybe representing a time that wasn't necessarily all-out war, but wasn't necessarily peaceful either, just something in between. Now, you might be wondering who this man on the red horse is supposed to represent, and we're about to find out. But first, make quick note of the fact that the text tells us that they were in the glen, They're in the glen. That means they are at the low area of the valley. They're at the bottom of the valley. This wasn't on a mountaintop. This was in the depths of a valley. So let's continue, verses 9 to 11. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered, the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. So who's standing among the myrtle trees? The angel of the Lord, it tells us, was standing among the myrtle trees. And who is the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. Jesus is the angel of the Lord. If you remember, for example, when Gideon was having a conversation with the angel of the Lord in Judges 6, we saw that that's exactly who the angel of the Lord was. It was Jesus. We're going to see it revealed a little bit more in depth later on in this passage too. It shouldn't be shocking to us though that Jesus would show up throughout the Old Testament because Jesus is eternal. He didn't just spring into existence in Bethlehem. When he was born. No, he's the one through whom, by whom, and for whom all things were made. So there's no reason to think that he was inactive prior to the incarnation. The riders on the other horses are angels whom God had sent out to patrol the earth. So taking all that we've seen so far into account, the image that Zechariah is given here, is of Christ himself standing in the depths of the valley with his people in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their affliction. He's standing there among them. The angelic patrol had been sent out to discover what the nations around them are up to, and the report is that the surrounding nations are at ease. They're, They're at peaceful rest at the moment. And you might be tempted to initially think, well, that's good, you know, that the, that the nations are, are at peace. But it's not. It's not good news because while the other nations are quiet and at peace, Israel has been torn to pieces. And they're lying in ruins while a drought and a famine have settled on the land. So it's not looking good for them. It's not looking good for them at all. Hence the vision of them being in the depths of the valley. This report leads to the angel of the Lord saying something very interesting. Look at verse 12 with me. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long 
will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? What are the 70 years? Anybody know? The Babylonian exile. The exile. Now, the angel of the Lord is usually seen communicating with the people of God, but here the angel of the Lord addresses the Lord of hosts. Do you see what he's doing? Do you see what what Jesus is doing here? He's interceding on behalf of his people before God Almighty, pleading for the Lord of hosts to show mercy to his people, to to the people of the angel of the Lord. He's pleading their case for them as their intercessor, as their mediator. He's begging for mercy to be shown to them on their behalf. See, for 70 years, the people had been exiled. They'd been in Babylon, exiled, kicked out of their homeland. And that was God's means of of, of disciplining them for their sinfulness and for their refusal to turn back to him. The fact that the city of Jerusalem and the region of Judah were still a mess was a reflection of God's continuing displeasure with them, his jealousy for what was rightfully his, their hearts, their praises, their worship, their general devotion to him. Let's continue. Verses 13 to 17. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So Christ intercedes for his people. And the response from heaven is kind. The response from heaven is filled with compassion and mercy. The the response from the throne of heaven brings comfort. God's love, God's jealous and righteous love is unfailing, it's unyielding, it's unflinching unwavering toward his people. Even though they have sinned against him, even though in their hearts they have rebelled and rebelled and rebelled and sinned against him, he reveals here that he is quick to comfort us before we reach despair. The picture here is how, uh, how Christ intercedes on behalf of his people for the mercy and for the blessings of heaven to be poured out upon his people. Even after they've sinned and yet have repented, verses 1 to 6. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 
Uh, verse 34, he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. To this day, this is something that he's doing on behalf of his people. He's our mediator. He is the one mediator between fallen man and holy God. He's our intercessor. He cares deeply for his people. He intercedes for his people. He encourages his people. And he does not abandon his people. That's why this vision is Uh, That's why this vision portrayed the angel of the Lord among the myrtle trees. The myrtle trees represent remnant Israel, and he's right there with them. In a season of deep spiritual discouragement and also heartfelt repentance, the Lord Jesus was in the depths of the valley with them. They didn't walk alone. How many of you know that's the same for you? That's the same for us today. We walk through the valleys, we walk through hard times, we go through struggles and trials, and Jesus is right there with us. He doesn't walk away from us, he doesn't abandon us, he doesn't forget us. The response to the question, how long, is answered with an affirmation of God's righteous and jealous love for his people. In fact, if we were to translate the message from the Lord uh, from Hebrew in, in verse 14, we'd see that literally translated, it says that he is jealous with great jealousy. He's jealous with great jealousy. Again, when there's repetition like that, it's kind of like putting it in all caps and underlining it and putting it in bold font so that you don't miss the fact that he is jealous In the previous passage, prior to their repentance, he was angry with anger toward them. Now it says that he is jealous with great jealousy for them. In verse 15 here, we see something else that's that's very important. We see that even though the nations around them are at ease, even though they, they, they seem to be at peace, God is exceedingly angry with them. Again, literally translated, it would say that he is angry with great anger at the nations around them that are at ease. While God had, at one time, raised them up to come against his people and discipline them, that's what we we saw in the book of Habakkuk, Israel's enemies were far harsher than was morally permissible. They oppressed Israel and crushed Israel with greater severity than they should have. And here we get just the slightest taste of this mystery between God's will and humanity's will, because God is the one who raised up these enemies to discipline Israel. And yet he still holds these enemies morally responsible for their sin, morally accountable for their actions. And so you might think, well, that's not fair. You know, he, he raised them up and, and now he's going to punish them for what he raised them up to do. But the truth is that God is sovereign and he is always just. He is never unrighteous and he is always causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Romans eight twenty eight. So why does God hold them responsible if he's the one that raised them up? 
He holds them responsible because the means by which he raised them up was by lifting his restraining hand from them. If you liken man's sinful inclinations to a reservoir of water, a great reservoir of water that's being held in place by a dam. Imagine what would happen if suddenly the dam were removed. In his sovereign wisdom and righteousness, God simply allowed the floodgates of wickedness to flow from the hearts of his enemies without restraint for a season, or at least with less restraint. So he didn't cause the wickedness, he allowed it. He simply chose not to hold their wickedness back. So God is rightfully angry at the surrounding nations, and he's exceedingly jealous for his people. Provoked by his, his jealous love, he declares in verse 16, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. With mercy. Now let's be very clear about what mercy is. Mercy means not getting what you deserve, not getting the punishment that you deserve. Kids, let's say that mom and dad tell you, if you don't eat all your dinner, I'm sending you to bed. And so there are Brussels sprouts on your plate. And you decide, I'm not eating that. I'd, I'd rather just go to bed. But then all of a sudden you think, I don't want to go to bed. It's only six o'clock, you know, Okay. And so mom and dad say, okay, you can stay up. Now, they had told you that if you didn't eat all your dinner, you're going to bed early. So what do you deserve? You deserve to go to bed early. But mom and dad said, okay, we'll give you a break this time. That's mercy. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. Did Israel deserve mercy? By definition, it's impossible to deserve mercy. No, they had all sinned greatly against God, but in his mercy, which is never obligatory, he's never obligated to show mercy, but he chooses in accordance with his sovereign will to show mercy. And in his sovereign mercy, he reaches out to them, declaring that he is with them. Out of his great mercy, he makes four promises here that we see. First of all, he promises that he is with them. He is with them. They're in the depths of the valley, but they're not alone. Don't look for him on the mountaintops. He's finding people down in the valley. Their beloved city's in ruins, and the people have been in despair, reaching despair, but God has not abandon them. Ezekiel has received a vision of God's glory leaving the temple. That's what we saw in Ezekiel chapter 10 verses 18 and 19. But now God declares that he has returned and that the temple will be rebuilt. That's the first promise. Secondly, God promises that the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. The measuring line symbolizes complete restoration. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 38 and 39, Israel's getting ready to go off into exile, and this is what we read. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord, and from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill of Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa. So the first promise is God is with them. The second promise is that the city will be fully restored. Third, he promises, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. Jerusalem was in ruins. They were poor with the drought and the famine coming in. There wasn't a lot of hope for them. But God is saying that what was once decimated and impoverished would be blessed by God once again. They would no longer want or need for anything. God would be with them. God would restore them. And God would bless them providentially. Fourth, God says that he will once again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. His presence would be among them. He would restore them. He would bless them. He would comfort them. And they would have his favor. Friends, this is the same God that we worship. This is the same God that we love and have come to worship today. This is a God who is jealous for his people. Just as he was jealous for the hearts and the worship and the praises of Israel, so too he is jealous for the hearts of his people, the church, today. And if you look around the world today, you might think, man, the church is getting beat up. Man, the the church is in a low place. The church is in the depths of the valley. Churches that are faithful to the word of God across our country are losing attendance rapidly, while faithless churches that are doing everything that they possibly can to change and, and reflect the values and the ideals of the culture are all surviving and thriving. The war on marriage, from our perspective, looks like, man, it's just getting destroyed. Our our culture has totally redefined it. They've cheapened it. They've made it look like something that, that doesn't matter or isn't important anymore. Just a few days ago, I read that the top three cities in America for atheism are Seattle, Portland, in San Francisco. Seattle, Portland, and San Francisco. Anybody surprised? Make no mistake about it, friends. The, the culture up here in the Pacific Northwest, the overall culture, hates God. It has never been more difficult to be a Christian in this culture, in our culture, than it is today. But I want you to consider the reality of the matter That God has ordained that you and I exist right here, right now, in accordance with his purposes. We live in the darkest part of the country, spiritually speaking, and in December, you know, almost literally, except for Alaska, right? Alaska, yeah, they beat us. But God has us right here, right now, to be a light in the darkness, and light shines the brightest in the darkest darkness. So in that sense, you might consider it to be a great honor that God has us here, right now. See, the culture, if you were to go around and ask people, 
They might seem, they might feel like they're at peace. But they're not at peace with the one that matters. Only the true church can rightfully feel at peace, even though she's being crushed. Even though we're in the depths of the valley, even though we're being persecuted more and more and more. We see things happening that are just taking religious liberties away and all these things. Because even though we're walking through this proverbial valley, the Lord Jesus walks with us. He's right there with us. He hasn't left us. He hasn't abandoned us. He is with us. He is for us. And he's jealous for us. It would be easy for us to take a very cautious approach to living out our faith in a culture like this. It would be easy to just try to, you know, kind of blend in with the culture, practice a chameleon Christianity with the culture, which just seems to be at ease right now, and just maybe shake our heads and and look the other way when we realize that there is just an abundance of wickedness and injustice that we're surrounded by every single day. Because if we were to actually live with a radical and bold faith that shares the love of God, we might disrupt their sense of peace. Indeed, we we very well may. But we need to understand that we are surrounded every day by people who are spiritually dead, separated from God, and who need to hear about the love of God especially as that jealous love was expressed on Calvary as Christ demonstrated the ultimate love by bearing the wrath of God against every sin of every person who would place saving faith in him. This is the greatest love and the greatest news, the greatest message ever known. And it is a love that declares to a culture like ours, you may have forgotten about me, but I haven't forgotten about you. Now, depending on which side of the coin you fall on, that can be a very, very bad thing or that can be a good thing. But how will they believe if nobody shares the gospel with them? If we practice this chameleon Christianity where we just blend in and keep quiet, keep our faith to ourselves, how will they believe if they don't hear the gospel? Paul says this in Romans chapter 10. He says, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, he's talking about Christ, everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone Preaching. Now, before you get caught up on that word preaching and say, well, I'm not a preacher, <laughs> that's not my gift, so I, I don't have to do it. The, the Greek word really means proclaiming or talking about. So Paul clarifies this notion, by the way, of calling on the Lord in his letter to the church in Corinth. He writes in 1 Corinthians 12.3 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. God has ordained that the gospel will advance through his people. It's a, it's a cooperative effort where we plant the seeds by sharing the good news of Christ 
And the Holy Spirit does the work of regeneration, enabling them to truly say that Jesus is Lord. He convicts sinners of their sin and their need for repentance, and he converts, enabling someone to truly say that Jesus is Lord. That means it's more than just lip service. It's something that's coming from their hearts. But how will they believe if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if nobody tells them? We now come to the second vision that was given to Zechariah. This is a quick one. We're going to cover it quickly. Verses 18 to 21. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So the horns... That's the first thing he sees here. The horns of an, ap- uh, of an animal represented their power, their, their might. And we can kind of relate to that, right? I mean, if you're a hunter, you, you want a deer with uh, the biggest set of antlers because those are the ones that represent power. Those are the, you don't want to mess with those. If you're going to come face-to-face with a, with a buck, you, you want it to be a, a smaller one. If they've got a big set of antlers, you want to just kind of get out of there unless you have some way of, uh, yeah, getting them out of the way. If you're in Texas, you might see people strapping bullhorns to the front of their vehicles, which I never knew what that was about, but, but it represents might. Those horns represent might. I'm not sure why they put it on the front of like a Cadillac or something. It's not like it's going to help if they had, you know, get in a fender bender or anything, but it represents might. Likewise, in the Old Testament, the horns of an animal represent military or political power, strength, And while there's a ton of speculation out there about which nations these four horns represent, let's stick with what we know for sure without speculating too much. It's easy when you're reading prophecy to speculate, but we don't want to do that. We want to go with what we know here. And what what we know for a fact is that the horns are representing the people or the nations or the tribes that had oppressed God's people, that had scattered and afflicted God's people. Isn't it interesting that Zechariah isn't interested in who the craftsmen are, but rather he's curious about what their purpose is. He says, what are these coming to do? And the answer is that they're coming to terrify those who have afflicted God's people. What's their significance, though? And this is kind of a weird vision, a little bit more obscure than the previous one, but we need to keep the context in mind, the context of, of the whole passage, the things that were going on when this message was given to them. What were the people doing when Zechariah and Haggai were raised up by God as prophets? The people were rebuilding the temple, right? They were doing the work of God. They were worshiping God through their actions, through the rebuilding of the temple. And God has just promised... In the previous vision, he's just promised that the temple would be rebuilt. And so the idea here is that when God's people, out of obedience unto God, 
participate in God's work in the world, it's going to bring affliction. It's going to bring opposition. I just saved this quote on my phone this morning. It's from John Calvin. Let me pull this out. This is a great quote. John Calvin says, Satan always comes forth when we resolve to obey God. If we are participating actively in God's work in the world, it will bring opposition. It will bring discouragement. It will bring demoralization. It might even bring intimidation. It might even bring the temptation to feel fear about living for God and expressing our faith outwardly. One of the indications of a church that's being faithful is seeing the devil try to bring opposition against them, whether that's through just local opposition or the powers that be or however. But the devil will never stop God's work from going forward. The point of this prophetic vision, the second vision here, is that God's people will prevail because God will prevail and because God is for his people. He's jealous for them. He loves them. He will protect them. He's a refuge for them. And so ultimately we see here that the horns will be cast down by these four craftsmen. This is a picture of God's wrath coming against those who oppose him and who oppose and afflict his people. The fist that's raised in rebellious Sinful defiance against God will be demonstrated in the end to be absolutely powerless. It will be cast down. This is why those who stand against God, those who afflict God's people since they can't touch God, should be terrified. God doesn't take their rebellion lightly. And God is more than capable of matching and overwhelming whatever force they bring against him and his purposes. Nothing can stop God's purposes. His work will be done. His kingdom will be built. His purposes will be fulfilled. The world may hate us. Indeed, didn't Jesus say they would? Didn't he promise they would? But they cannot stop God's purposes from being fulfilled, his work from going forth. Christ stands with his people. He stands with us. He is our refuge. He is our defender. And if our God is for us, who can come against us? But if God's wrath is coming to silence and cast down those who oppose him, we must continue the work of spreading the gospel and making disciples, trusting the results of that work in God's hands, knowing that nothing can come against us when the Lord is for us. And there's nothing that the Lord cannot protect us from. That's why Paul was at total ease in prison right before he died. Because he knew there's nothing God can't protect me from. God could have gotten me out of this situation, but here I am. So he's got me here for a reason. Matthew Henry comments this. He says, quote, When God has work to do, he will raise up some to do it and others to defend it and protect those that are employed in the doing of it. End quote. Friend, the, friends, the, the church in our culture 
might be at the depths of the valley right now. But the church is being purified. God's work is going forward despite the opposition. His church is being built. Count on it. You can count on these things. God is always working to purify his people and to build his church. And he's called his people to remember his righteous and jealous love for them. And to remember that Christ is with us and will never, ever leave us or forsake us. And to remember that he is sufficient for our every need. If we're in affliction... We've got a defender. He's our strong tower. God's love, his jealous love for his people is unfailing and his faithfulness to his promises is unfailing and knowing these things must comfort us. Knowing these things must encourage us and spur us on to live out our faith fearlessly. Spurring us on toward good works which are done for the glory of God which flow from an increasingly greater love for him and an increasingly faithful obedience unto him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And as the hymn declares, Lord, great is your faithfulness. We echo that sentiment in our hearts, Lord. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. Lord, we thank you for your word and the comfort that it brings, for the encouragement that it brings. And we pray, Lord, that as we reflect on these truths, that we will trust you more than we trust our circumstances, more than... We fear any opposition. We trust you. Teach us, Lord, to be a people who live for your glory, who live fearlessly under your authority, knowing that nothing can come against us that you can't prevent and won't prevent. Thank you for the confidence, Lord, that your purposes will not be thwarted. Teach us, Lord, to trust more in you that we may glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.